This is a Dauntless Media Collective podcast. Visit dauntless.fm for more content. I regret to inform you, you're on Chapel Probation, a podcast that takes a critical look at evangelical colleges and universities. And I'm your host, Scott Okamoto. Greetings, reprobates. I'm back from a lovely, albeit rainy, week in Seattle and Portland. Everyone told me it doesn't really rain that much here. Well, damn it, it rained a lot. There was so much rain, there was a mudslide between Portland and Seattle, and my train got canceled, and I had to take a bus. But I did it. I even got to hang with today's guest, Jared, along with so many others, like Tori Williams Douglas, Ben from earlier this season, Aaron and Jove Reap, Zach and Dave of the VCW podcast, and I got to meet some new friends, Sarah and Rochelle up in Portland. It was awesome, even with a mudslide. Um, today, we continue this kind of sub-theme of people trying their damnedest to remain Christian. And we keep the tally going for boys' dorms being showcases for male nudity. You might remember a few weeks ago with Tim Cooper, I think it was Tim Cooper, saying he visited Simpson College only to be completely weirded out by the sheer level of nudity. Yeah, uh, he didn't end up going there, partly because of that. But today's guest did go there. Uh, Jared is now a father of three and a math teacher, and his time at Simpson College was actually mostly good. It's just now, as a, as a deconstructed person, he looks back, as we all do, in horror at what we used to think, say, and do in the name of fundamentalist Christianity. Yep. All right, my name's Jared. I use he, him pronouns. And I graduated from Simpson College. It's Simpson University now, but uh, when I went, it was Simpson College. In Redding, California. That's correct. Yeah, we won't get into it, but just it is fascinating that you had an English professor who became one of my colleagues at APU. And uh, yeah, we'll, we'll just let people's imaginations roam with that one. <laughs> <laughs> Small world. <laughs> it, really, it, it really is. All right. So what kind of religious background did you have before you hit you hit Simpson? Yeah, so I grew up uh near there in a uh in a small town where I was in an Assembly of God church from a pretty young age. My parents were not church attenders uh until apparently my enthusiasm at a Christian preschool uh, brought the whole family to the yard. <laughs> and uh so Pretty much my youngest memories are that we were in church just about every Sunday. I was, you know, when there was youth group type stuff from middle school on up and um, was pretty involved Went, you know, did the mission trip things for, for a few years in middle school and high oh, school. Yeah. And so, yep. So Simpson, I actually, other than knowing that, that colleague, I don't know much about it. I assume it's fairly fundamentalist and conservative. Um, yeah. Can you describe? What, what Simpsons like? Yeah, so it's uh, it's with the Christian and Missionary Alliance. And I don't think I actually knew that until probably the first chapel that I attended as a student there. I, I, it wasn't something I looked at coming in. It wasn't something they really put front and center on their uh, promotional stuff, at least that I remember at the time. So, at which, you know, neither here nor there about the denomination, but, um, but it was, it, it was a surprise to me. That was not the reason I chose it. It was because I lived nearby. So ah, close proximity. Did you live in the dorms? I did for, uh, for three years actually. Woo-hoo. Yeah. Was there a lot of nudity? I was just asked that on another podcast. Someone has picked, someone was listening and said, Oh, I listened to a couple of episodes and I just, all I remember was the dicks and balls in the boys dorm. Yeah. Um, so- 
I, you know, I, one of your guests from uh, several months ago was talking about stopping there on a choir trip. That's right. And when, when he mentioned visiting Simpson during the summer, I, I went, oh boy. (laughs) And I just about threw my car off the side of the road laughing so hard when, when he talked about, uh, yeah, I, I can't remember exactly what he said, but basically lots of, lots of Dixon balls and, um, yeah, yeah. And it's, it's a, it's a weird thing. I went to school with, uh, there were a lot of students there who'd been, um, missionary kids overseas. Some had been in private school and homeschool and public school. I grew up in public schools myself. Mm. Um, and it just, it seemed like I saw a lot more of that repressed <laughs> sexuality, uh, finding its way, uh, out in the open. And, um, I, I remember thinking, well, maybe this is what college is supposed to be like. And I, I just, I just didn't know. I didn't feel one way or another about judging it, but <laughs> looking back on it now, it was pretty damn weird. <laughs> it is. It's fascinating because, you know, I went to a big state college and outside of the shower, we, we didn't hang out naked. You know, we, we, um, I mean, we are also not as sequestered away from women as, as y'all were. So at any given moment, anyone could walk through through our, our suite. But yeah, it's interesting. And that, yeah, it's yeah. Someone someday, someone will do studies about this and why there's more dicks per capita in the in the freshman dorms of evangelical <laughs> schools um, than in regular schools. But you know, and no judgment. It's it's just just interesting. <laughs> and it's apparently it, yeah. it doesn't translate over to the other side. The women were not. It was bad to be to be uh, naked in the women's dorms. So, well, I wouldn't know because we weren't allowed in there. So, right, right. That was... <laughs> Except for we had once or twice a semester we'd get we would did have open dorms for a couple hours on a Wednesday or something like that. And once or twice a, an entire semester. Yeah, it, I mean, it was a big deal. We'd, there'd be there'd be you know flyers up. You know, it's open dorms next Wednesday. Uh, it was not a, it was not a common thing at all. Wow. Okay. What years were, was this? This was the late nineties. So uh, 96 to 2000. Okay. Cause it sounds like we're describing like the 1950s. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I realize that now, but you know, and, and they, they talk about that bubble and it's, it's true. I mean, you, you just don't realize how, how unaware of, current cultural and societal norms a lot of that is yeah and then chapel three times a week three times a week mandatory um, yet you had to have two-thirds attendance okay that's actually and, pretty cool yeah so it meant you could miss one a week and um back then we were still signing in on clipboards so they yeah. had all the you know pre-internet pre pre uh, yeah yeah, <laughs> yeah. Pre- you know, we, we started scanning our cards for lunch toward the end of my time there, but it was just a barcode on a piece of plastic. It wasn't, yeah. you know, they, they would usually have one or two, you know, one person for every maybe two or three chairs kind of monitoring, making sure that you were just signing your initials and not somebody else's. Oh, and, okay. That was, that was how yeah. they kept track. That, yes, because you signed your initial there and, and then they'd, they usually would draw a line through it afterwards so you couldn't. Because you know, it'd be a bit just a printed spreadsheet on a sheet of paper, uh, so they'd use the, the next the next time you could see, you know, who was who'd been there the time before or who hadn't. And so, and then someone had to like just count count it all up and record it somewhere. I I guess so. And if you were if you were one short of the sixty six percent, then um, there might have been some makeup options. But if it if you were way below that then basically you were on you were chapel on probation, probation. The, next, the next there we go <laughs> <laughs> i need a, a if yeah i need a like a sound ding 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 any anytime someone was on <laughs> so i assume you were not ever on chapel probation oh no oh no i i you know i i made sure i was well above that threshold in the first couple months of the semester so that i could kind of cruise in toward Ooh, the end yeah, so planning now when you started <laughs> did you like chapel so my my experience was I I actually usually did 
through through most of my time there. My um, my journey through deconstruction and just kind of deeper exploration and questioning um, the facets of my childhood upbringing and faith and stuff. It didn't happen for quite a few years after really, really only in the past, maybe six or seven years from now. Oh, cool. But um, I mean, I usually did. Um, I look back on it now and I, I am fairly good friends with a few people who uh, to this day who, you know, kind of in a similar space as me and, and we just, we'll get in these conversations and it's just bizarre. Some of the stuff that we, you know, the, the I mean, the forced attendance is one thing, you know, that, yeah, um, it just seems so normal to us. Yeah. Then. And it is normal and, for evangelical schools like that. So. Right. Yep. And for their mission, I, I guess if that's part of their mission, but you know, then you get into questions of, you know, how they're funded and it's just interesting how they can receive so many millions in federal funding and yet be so discriminatory and right in so many of the things that they carry out too. So, yeah. Looking back, do you, do you remember chapel talks that were like, huh, that wasn't very good or, you know, that, that didn't make sense or that was just lame. Um, yeah, I, I remember one, this one became pretty, um, pretty epic among our student body at the time. And we, we had a chapel where one of the staff members had given a, um, I don't know, would you call it a sermon at, at a 40 minute chapel? I don't know. Yeah. But yeah, I'm not sure what she, the, what the rule is. If you're not like a pastor or something, do you, is that a sermon? Yeah. You just talking <laughs> or if, if she was oh, ordained she, anyway, oh, yeah, yeah. but she, the theme of her talk was how, um, I can't even remember what the connections were. But she talked about sex being like peanut butter, Ooh. and she drew all these comparisons to how that worked. Um, <laughs> Is sex smooth and... or crunchy? <laughs> yes. And a few weeks later, we had a um, we had a guest speaker who, unaware of the roster of uh, chapel sermons from that semester, his theme was how the Holy Spirit was like peanut butter. And wow, it's a good, good semester for peanut butter. Yes. So the, we had some pretty hilarious connections between that. It, you know, it, we laugh about it then, and we can look back now and think how weird it was. But a lot of us spent a lot of years not really considering how out of touch or out of place a lot of that content was, or the <laughs> things that we were practicing there. Uh, do, you, do you happen to remember how sex is like peanut butter? Because... Um... My mind is kind of stuck I, there after the dicks and balls. I, um, <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I, I really cannot remember right. what all we'll the just connections have to use were our imagination. Uh, or any of the connections. Yeah, I mean, we should do a go for okay, it. Okay, in this episode, we're going to do a bit about peanut butter. So let's just Perfect. put that out there. <laughs> hey, Dad. Yes, daughter. What's the Holy Spirit? Huh. Well, the Holy Spirit. It's like peanut butter. Huh? You see, the Holy Spirit it tastes great in a sandwich. You can even make a wonderful Holy Spirit sauce in many Southeast Asian dishes. Yeah, but like what See, is... it comes in smooth, and you can also get it in crunchy with little bits of Jesus in it for texture. Okay, but how... So really, the Holy Spirit is the middle of the Trinity the Trinity sandwich with God and Jesus being the bread. Hey, never mind. Oh man. Okay. Uh, moving on, moving on for peanut butter. Don't think about peanut butter. Okay. Um, <laughs> uh, peanut butter, peanut butter. Okay. Don't say peanut butter. We, we can do this. Actually, we can't. One more. Sorry. Hey, Dad. Yes, son? What's sex? <laughs> well, sex is like peanut butter. Oh, shit. Here we go again. You see, when a man and a woman are married and love each other very much and want to make a baby and possibly a wonderful, pleasant snack... Um, I don't think I want to know so about... So the man puts his peanut butter on 
the woman's bread. That would go outside and play it out. Well, well, hold on. I'm, I'm getting to the good part. Ew. So, the woman's uh, bread is not complete without the man's peanut butter, if you know what I mean. In fact, it's quite unredeemed without it. This is the worst thing I've ever heard. And men are programmed uh, by God to want to spread his peanut butter all over the woman's uh, bread. I've never had big sex. But don't you want to m- make a sandwich? Wait. So if sex is like peanut butter and so is the Holy Spirit, is the Holy Spirit somehow involved in sex? Yes. It's it's like a God, Jesus, Holy Spirit, and peanut butter orgy. Yeah. And it's wonderful. Wait, what are you doing? I'm Googling how to become a priest. Oh, uh, well, okay, but those guys use peanut butter in a really different, kind of fucked up way. <laughs> uh, Dad? Yes, son? So what's peanut butter? Oh, uh, oh, um, oof. You better go ask your mom. Okay, I think I got it out of my system. Um, so you, you went all the way through Simpson as a true believer. Did, was there any moments of doubt or deconstruction that you look back on, or was it pretty, pretty solid? Not, not that far back um, in my life, at least. I was, you know, the, the closest that I came to any kind of deconstruction then was attending a few services of the kind of the, um, oh, I can't even remember what it was called then. It was kind of what was happening in our area as a distant offshoot of what was happening in Portland, Seattle with like the Mark Driscoll type stuff happening. Oh, uh, like the kind of church uh, that it was? Yeah, but it was it was connected to a, a a main evangelical church, and they would have kind of evening services and um, that were mainly geared toward high school and college. And that that in and of itself just felt, I think at the time it felt edgy, or it felt like, hey, I'm going to this place where, you know, people might have, you know, ripped jeans and tattoos and stuff. Oh and yeah, that that does seem. Like, it's odd that that would even be salacious now, but it, it was a conservative town and it was 25 years yeah. ago. But yeah, um, that was before like the, the celebrity meg, uh, megachurch pastors with their graphic tees and and tattoos and thousand dollar sneakers. Yeah. And, yeah. Yep. For me, there was no really kind of deviation outside of this is just this is the this is the worldview. This is the way to do things. That really didn't happen for me until um around 2015 2016 right so yeah yeah and that's so this is cool because you know you know you've heard most of the guests have some kind of horrible moment or some crisis of faith or some kind of existential crisis while they're at these schools but a few of my guests have just kind of cruised through and loved it you know just it was a great experience you know so it's not until later you you start to unpack it and go oh yeah that was weird or that was kind of fucked up or, you know, that's, um, so yeah, let's, let's get you to, to how would you describe yourself now, uh, spiritually? So I, I, I would describe myself still, um, as a, as a Christian, but I don't, I don't think other than like really describing it that I usually use that term. Yeah. I haven't regularly attended church in several years. And, um, what I do find one of the things that's really beautiful is, it, for me, it was a pretty big shift, and it was deconstructing um, a lot of the evangelicalism of my faith. It was really taking a hard look at the politics intertwined with that faith. I mean, to consider anything outside of, you know, a deep red Republican was just anathema. I mean, you couldn't—there's no such thing as a Christian Democrat, right? right? And so— I can look at some threads and see a little bit of a glimmer, you know, five years ago, 10 years ago, even 15 years ago, think maybe I was starting to question, but it was so ingrained in me that just to really even consider abandoning my faith for that, it's like, no, I can't do that because I'm, I'm in the, I'm like, I'm in this magic pathway that I'm, I'm in the right way. I'm in the right path here. So why would I abandon this? I'm so lucky to have been born in this country when I was born and, 
to go to the church that I did that helped shape me into the one right denomination that believes the right things. And so I, of course, never said those thoughts out loud, but looking back now, that's definitely how, how I felt then. But today it's the people I'm closer to now, um, more of them um, either, I would say most of them have had faith experience in the past, hmm. but uh, I would say a large part of a, a large portion of them are people who have changed their beliefs. And some of them would no longer, con a lot of them don't consider themselves Christians anymore. And I think that's wonderful. <laughs> I, um, I find um, that I am challenged intellectually and spiritually on deeper levels by those interactions than I ever was hanging out around my own ill, yeah. if that makes sense. Yeah, totally. And, you know, we talk about, yeah, we, you know, we talk about that, um, the, the meetup in Portland, um, a year and a half ago, um, a lot of those people have become good friends. In fact, um, my wife and I spent our, um, Thanksgiving with people that I either met there or have met through the connections there. We had a little Friendsgiving together. And nice. so that's a pretty cool thing at, in my forties, you know, mid forties to be, um, making good friends like that. Cause I, I think that's not always very common. Yeah. And especially coming out of, you know, one of the things that a lot of people who leave, leave the church and leave the faith or change how they express it, that community is, is, um, is a hard thing to give up. And you do give up a lot of those community connections when you do that. For sure. For sure. Deconstruction, deconversion, deprogramming, decolonizing, so many terms and so many experiences. There really isn't a single blueprint for any of this. And Jared, like a lot of us, like most of us, held tightly to his faith. And he held on for a good long time until he just couldn't anymore. The only thing or things that we all have in common is that we don't make this decision to leave without a great deal of stress, anxiety, fear, and incredible effort to stay. And for people like Jared, who are cis-het white men with no experiences of patriarchy or racism, at least against them, there's a lot more reason to stay. But it takes an intelligent and deeply caring white man to leave evangelical faith in America. And I've said it before, I salute them when they do. Because unlike those of us who had, now we're going to get some metaphors here. <clears throat> unlike those of us who had frayed edges of our faith scraped and torn even more by racism and misogyny, Jared simply observed the crappy politics and the race issues and didn't like what he saw. He self-scraped the edges of his faith to find the strands to pull on that would eventually reveal to him well, what we all come to see, that evangelical Christianity is evil. It's fraudulent, it's hypocritical, and it's based on white nationalist politics more than it is any theology. Yeah, I said it. All right, so then let's close the gap now. Like, how did you get to this point? So, um, I, I'm a, I'm a math guy. <laughs> I've, uh, I've always loved math. In fact, I teach math now at high school. The, the biggest catalyst for me were the events of 2020. But even before that, what was happening in 2016 and the run-up to the presidential election, the math tie-in for me was I, when we first went into lockdown in, the, in March of 2020, we all had all of a sudden hours sitting at home with a lot of expendable time. And I you know, got pretty obsessed with a lot of the statistics. There was a lot of data coming out everywhere about how, how this virus was growing and where it was growing. And I just started pushing out some of my thoughts and, and trying to look at patterns and connections. And I was just looking at numbers and I would put some of those things on Facebook. And so it was just going to an audience of people that I knew pretty much. 
And I was really surprised at some of the pushback that I started getting. Oh. And um, I'm, I just said, wait a minute, I'm just looking at the data. <laughs> and it was shocking to me how politicized that became really quickly. I'd already been turned off to the political party of my upbringing because of the previous president. Yeah. And um, so I was already kind of maybe primed for some major changes. But when that happened, and then I can remember exactly where I was sitting when I saw the news about when I first learned about what had happened to George Floyd. And I think that one event, um, you know, probably was the biggest single catalyst for me. It wasn't the only one. Right. Um, but then I started to look back and say, gosh, why wasn't it Trayvon Martin or why wasn't it, you know, and I started looking back at the, uh, all of those, you know, similar type incidents. And I could see a lot of places in, in my life where maybe that should have happened or could have happened. And it didn't. And yet I still had friends who were on, a more progressive side who were still friends with me and were patient with me. Um, even if I didn't see those things the same way, hmm. but all of that kind of culminated in a pretty big shift for me. And I think that's, I think that's where I would pin it is those few months there between the lockdown and what happened with George Floyd. Yeah. And, and the George Floyd thing was, you know, it was so, it, well, it was, it was video. <laughs> we, we, you could, you could watch in real time a man be murdered. So yeah, I think that was a big flashpoint for a lot of people. Um, so did did this make you like look at your your theology as well? Did you did it did it change your relationship with the Bible or or mostly just the culture of like the church? It, Scott, it was everything. Oh. I I described it once, and I've I've not come up with a better analogy like the if everything in my life was in a big toy box full of you know legos and you know love legos gi joe figures and and whatever you know but like everything and just dump the whole thing on the ground and and start from scratch and go through that whole pile and say what's worth keeping wow. what what of these beliefs that i've acquired are um are worth salvaging and, um, it, it was like that moment when you finally decide to clean the junk drawer in your kitchen yeah. and you say, I'm just going to throw everything, maybe throw everything away, or at least dump it somewhere where you can go through and say 90% of the stuff is garbage and I don't need this anymore. And that's really what happened, um, with me. Wow. So, so church was one of the things you threw out apparently. Um, it, well, it, it's something I decided not to pick back up, at least actively. It's it, uh, I'm not closed to the idea of attending a church service or becoming part of a faith community. But, you know, all of us were kind of on pause from that. And I think, um, I think that's what exacerbated a lot of the response to George Floyd is a lot of us had been sitting mostly at home for about three months by then. And I think, we were just ultra sensitive to the way people were being treated uh, to, to life because we were watching this virus take people out. And like you said, it was on video. We all got to see it. It was pretty tough to hide what happened. Yeah. And it just, it just was enough to in that pause to say, I think I'm going to zoom out a little bit further here and look at why why was it that I didn't see events like this so that I wasn't affected this way before? Yeah. 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 So did you, did you go into the deep dive of race and systemic racism and things like that as well? I, I did. And, um, and I, and, and that's been, um, you know, I grew up in a, the little town I grew up in was, um, a gold mining town and, um, in the, um, in the 1840s and 1850s, soon after it was, well, I say founded, but now I would clarify, you know, where the white man first discovered it. Hmm. Um, but, you know, they the, the town had several thousand white men and several thousand Chinese uh, 
immigrants and they were the laborers. Mm. And we, we kind of knew that because the, the site where my elementary school was for the first eight, you know, eight years of my schooling, uh, well, not kindergarten, but first through eighth, I went there, yeah. uh, was the site of a, a major battle. And there's a, there's a plaque up on the hill that talks about the aggressive Chinese that, you know, yeah. tried to stage this war and how many of them were killed. And I, I look at things like that a lot differently now, you know, um, wh why, why were they aggressive all of a sudden, you know, they willingly came there to work. What, what changed? How were they treated? So I know there's a really awful history. And then all of a sudden I would start connecting some dots and saying, we, we have a terrible history of the way we treat uh, native Americans and, the Chinese in the ninth century and the Japanese in the 20th century. And I, I mean, I, I realize I'm glossing over many instances and chapters, by, yeah, but yeah, we don't need to list all of, yeah, all of but it's, history. it's, we, we, <laughs> yeah, our, our history sucks. And so, um, it, and the thing is, is learning those things to me makes me more appreciative to be in a country that's not just totally shot to hell now. Mm. Um, in the same way that feeling okay about the Bible not having to be perfect or inerrant yeah. <laughs> it makes me appreciate it more. And it makes me appreciate the aspects of my faith that um, it makes me really explore. Because when, when everything's accepted carte blanche, you really don't ever think about it. You just kind of leave your mind at the door. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, that's, you know, I'm so glad to be talking to you because hearing hearing anyone reevaluate their worldview is a beautiful thing i think um and i know it's 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 harder for for white folks in america um and it's not and nothing to do with being white it's just the whatever majority culture in any society it's there's there's privilege with that and so to 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 even analyze how that works can be uncomfortable and so yeah, anyone that's willing to to self analyze and and look and question your worldview and the way you're brought up, you know that that takes courage and intelligence and a sense of humanity that is sorely lacking these days. So when you yeah. look, when when was it 2016 or 2020 in those moments, and when you dump out the toy chest, do you remember the, any of the things that you decided you you were throwing out? Um, that, that you had like maybe something deeply held or, or something traditional in, in your, in your family or in your church culture? Yeah. Um, some big, some big pieces were things like the inerrancy of the Bible. Right. And um, just kind of the authoritative nature of a, a pastor up on, you know, up on the pulpit. And those are some things that, as I started to question, um, and and not every not every church I ever attended had a pastor like that, by the way. But there is just kind of a an unwillingness to, to question things. And I I in in my classroom, I make it very clear to my students that I'm let me know if I'm wrong. Um, let me know if I yeah. come across uh, harsh in a way. And some of the ways of some of it's because of the pandemic and just how that changed a lot of how we interact with each other. Mm -hmm. But I find it can be hard to keep up with how to just properly respond to somebody so that they're not offended. Mm -hmm. Even if I didn't do anything wrong, um, as the adult in the room, it's still up to me to maintain that connection and, and not piss them off too. So, but yeah. But those things are, um, like you said, they're they're hard because all of a sudden you start looking back. At, Here's all these things I've spent all of this time believing, and and maybe it's a bummer to to have felt like, um, for example, maybe the first the first loosening of that bow was probably just a willingness to not vote straight line red, and for a lot of people that doesn't seem like that seems like a really obvious thing, but I think it was pretty entrenched for me, and so. Um, I'm now, depending on which group I'm in, I've, I've, I've been called the, 
the most liberal friend of some of my friends that I've had for a long time. And some of my newer <laughs> friends call me their most conservative friend. So <laughs> yeah, it's all relative. Yeah, it really is. But um, like, like you said, and I've, it's one of the things I've really appreciated about a lot of the stories I've heard on this podcast. And I just find that um, this is not to downplay myself, but I don't go throughout my day thinking, Oh, I'm, you know, something really special, but you know, we all have stories. And yeah, I find I do find one of the things that just fascinates me so much about um, about chapel probation is how much resonance I find with people's stories, even if they've lived lives entirely different from mine. And I, I think there's just a lot of power in that. And um, and just being willing to embrace, like you said, willing to embrace change, the, the courage to say, you know what? I was wrong about this and even talking to those things with my own children, uh, you know, and so that's another whole thing too, is kind of going through this while being a parent. And so that's a fascinating journey as well. Yeah, it is. My kids were little when we stopped going to church and they were actually glad because they hated it. Um, so that was easy. Um, do, do your kids remember going to church? Yeah. Um, and this might be a part that, I, I, I want to, um, just be careful. I'll, I'll still tell the whole story, but just what, what I want to make sure is that I'm not getting, um, parts of their story in, um, because we, the, they go back and forth between my house and their moms. Um, uh, okay. so their mom's still at church and, um, but what I, what I think is safe to say is that my, um, one of one of my, my, my oldest child has, um, really, he's graduated high school and in various ways, he's really thanked me. He's, he's not generally a very emotive uh, kid. Well, he's not, he's not a kid anymore. He's an adult now, but when he thanked me for being so transparent with my, he didn't use the word deconstruction, but that's how I would call it. But just my faith journey and how much he saw, how willing I was to, you know, be wrong about stuff and change what I believe. And um, it it had a big impact on him in some pretty formative years of his life. And so um, that's, that's powerful. And I, I don't expect my kids to believe all the same things I do. <laughs> I'm different yeah. than my parents. Um, right. But I always want them to feel comfortable sharing things with me. And, um, so that was a, to me and, and kind of the, the last few months that he was living at home before he went to college. Um, that was a nice gift to get. Yeah. That's beautiful. That's yeah. Oh, kids. Um, <laughs> it, uh, okay. I won't ask, I won't ask specifics about the kids. Um, but as a parent, um, yeah. Have you been surprised at, I don't know, this is going to sound dumb on my part, but when I, when I had kids, <laughs> when my wife had them, when we had them, um, uh, that was I, I kind of thought, yeah, yeah. It's like having peanut butter, um, <laughs> crunchy. Um, I, I, I assume that they would, uh, like all the things I liked and, um, you know, I, I assume they'd be their own people, but you know, yeah, my, none of my kids like baseball. And I'm a big baseball fan. You know, none of my kids really wanted to play a musical instrument. And I'm all about music. Um, but seeing that and embracing that and letting them be who they are with their own passions and their own hopes and dreams um, is another way to start. You, you got to kind of let go of the, the assumptions that you had when when you had kids. A- have you noticed that as well? Absolutely. Um, I also grew up uh, a huge baseball fan. <laughs> And, and still am. And um, it, in the, about the mid 80s um, is about the time when I can remember really following season after season. And you might remember how mini marts around the postseason would have those stacks of scorecards that you could go grab and take home yeah. and, and keep the book at home. And th- those are. Wait, some, were you a Giants fan up there? I was not. I had. I'll, A's? Nope. We had WGN in our little rural station. Oh, so <laughs> Cubs. Yes. So 
Um, I thought I was going to have a lifelong of suffering, but uh, yeah, we got our one championship. So whenever I die, I can die a happy man. Yeah. <laughs> but you know, that was, um, I'm not super emotionally close to my dad. We're not estranged or anything, but those are pretty special memories sitting down in the living room and, and learning how to keep a book at age eight. And, uh, by golly, when I barely made the team in high school, didn't get a lot of playing time, but coach knew he was, <laughs> he was keeping somebody in the uniform that could keep a real accurate book for him. So keep score. That's right. So I grew up thinking I'm going to be, I'm going to be a sports dad. And yeah. I'll tell you the three of my kids, there is not one lick of interest in any organized team sports at all <laughs> among them, but yeah. they, they are Same. all super involved in music and choir and band orchestra. Ah, nice. So I'm a, I'm a music dad. I'm not a sports dad and I yeah. couldn't be more thrilled. Yeah, I, I wanted to be a music dad too, and, and like my kids kind of weren't really that into music. Um, my daughter, my daughter saved me. She she hated it, but she played softball. Oh, she didn't hate it. She just was not good. Okay. <laughs> um, she could hit, but she couldn't catch her throw to save her life. But like, she liked being on a team, and she liked you know hanging with the girls and going to get yogurt after practice, and um, and she was on some good teams, but. Yeah, I got to be the assistant coach for a couple of years and, you know, pitch batting practice and do infield. And so through my daughter, I was able to get a little taste of, of sports dad. But, yeah, that's fun. But then she was like, she got older. She was like, yeah, I don't want to play anymore. I'm like, I, I get it. I I knew I was living on borrowed time. <laughs> <laughs> I appreciate the, t the two years that we had. Um, yeah. So, but yeah, I mean. So yeah, all, all these themes are tied together of like, you know, maybe just it's part of it, part of it's getting over ourselves and just accepting, you know, in this case, our kids for who they are and, and letting them flourish. And then with faith, you know, things that are so deeply held, we have to let go of. Um, uh, yeah, it's, it's all kind of a, a similar thing. For sure. So, whoo then I think she endures verbal abuse for a season and she endures perhaps being smacked one night and then she seeks help from the church. There is a pile of dead bodies behind the Mars Hill bus <laughs> and by God's grace, it'll be a mountain by the time we're done. You either get on the bus or you get run over by the bus. Those are the options. There's nothing holy about writing discrimination into the law and I am tired of communities of faith being weaponized because the only time religious freedom is invoked is in the name of bigotry and discrimination. I'm tired of it. Hi, I'm Nate, producer and co-host on the Full Mutuality Podcast. Let's talk about inequality. It's everywhere. Whether it's rooted in race, gender, ability, or sexuality, there's bound to be an imbalance in power, influence, representation, and access. On our show, we want to explore areas of religion, culture, and society where justice is needed in order to bring about true mutuality. I hope you'll join us for some enlightening, fun, and at times uncomfortable conversations as we envision a world where everyone can live free from systems and structures that keep us from being truly equal. You can find us on your favorite podcast app or visit our website, fullmutuality.com, to find a list of all the platforms we're available on. Subscribe today, and we'll see you on the Full Mutuality Podcast. Hey, everyone. I'm Jessica from the Leaving the Village Podcast. I wanted to take a moment to say thank you for tuning into this show. We're so grateful that you've decided to spend your time with us. Seriously, Dan, Gail, Kathleen, Nate, Scott, and the rest of us here at the Dauntless Media Collective couldn't produce content like the show you're listening to without your support. I'd also like to invite you even further into the conversation. Right now, there are some great discussions happening over in the Dauntless Media Collective Discord server. If you're interested in chatting with other folks who are deconstructing and decolonizing the oppressive traditions they came from, please feel free to hop onto the server. If you don't know what Discord is, it's a place where communities can gather online for chatting on a wide variety of topics. 
in our Discord server, we have channels devoted to general deconstruction conversations, some meme sharing, therapeutic venting about whatever religious bullshit you're currently dealing with, and even a channel specifically devoted to talking about the latest episode of the podcast you're listening to right now. I hope you'll join us. You can log in directly to the Dauntless server by clicking on the link in the show notes or heading to dauntless.fm and clicking on the link in the top banner. See you there. You can bet that both Jared and I sob big tears at the end of the movie Field of Dreams when Kevin Costner says to his dad, Hey, dad. Do you want to have a catch? I'm, I'm tearing up just saying it. Give me a minute. Damn kids. Okay, but let's talk about math. I hated math. I felt like I couldn't do it. And I didn't want to do it. But I did it. Math is like peanut butter. No, I'm not going to go there. Christianity is part of that whole scenario. Um, but that's for a later day. But really, the best math teachers don't just see and teach numbers. They see both the numbers and the context in which those numbers exist. They see patterns. They see logic. And these things apply to life. And Jared has to be a hell of a math teacher because, oof, well, you'll hear for yourself. Man, when when I think about um, my time in Christianity, you know, like, cause, so you, you made it until you held, you fought the good fight till 2016 <laughs> until it all started to unravel, right? Um, yeah, so, yeah. You, are you embarrassed, too, by some of the things you used to say? <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I am. And, um, you know, for me, it, it came out, I think, as a lot of kind of outward judgmentalism, too. And, Ooh, yeah. the, and you know, where I would actually do those, like, confronting people about their sin and, um, you know, whether it was a, a relationship or, um, you know, you really shouldn't be drinking because you're not 21 or, you know, you shouldn't be sneaking out of the dorm at night, things that were none of my business. <laughs> but <laughs> I, I thought it, it's, it's like you said, it's all tied together. And those are the sorts of things that I would, you know, steal up my nerves and have be courageous and have those, those conversations. And well, that, that was like a religious conviction too, right? It so really, it really was. It's like, if we're going to be real Christians, <laughs> you know, it's, it's, it was kind of our job to be, you know, to keep people accountable. That's the word. Right. That, so we were doing, you know, God's work when we confronted someone about their sin. Um, I was too shy to actually confront, um, other than my closest friends. Um, but yeah, I just remember saying some dumb shit like to, uh, to people, you know, quoting some like, Josh McDowell book or C.S. Lewis or something. Yeah. And it, and it never really fit the situation, but it's all, it's all I had, you know? Figured, well, well, I'm on God's side, so I'm, 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 I'm probably right. You, you're, there's the, there's the, the verse that says, do all things as if for the Lord. And it, it reminds me of, um, it, this may, uh, this may offend your, uh, professor sensibilities here, but no, um, I don't have those anymore. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I, I definitely on many occasions, um, came at an essay with a goal in mind and then went and found the sources that backed them up. And I think that that's what, um, a lot of people do. I, I mean, I know it's what a lot of people do with the Bible and because the Bible is held in <laughs> such, such a sacred, the Bible doesn't even claim, the Bible even says, I mean, if you hold the words of the Bible to be true, it doesn't even put itself on that pedestal. Yeah. And so the strategy that I and probably many other college students would use to, to write a paper is, well, I'm going to come up with my conclusion first, and then I'm going to just go find sources that back it up. And yeah, and I know I did that with the Bible, and I know a lot of people do that still. And, and it, it's hard to see. I mean, I know I went a lot of years 
still doing that. And um, it does, as frustrating as it can be when people don't see it, I, I remember how a lot of the friendships that I've carried and I could recognize where people probably had many opportunities to dump me as a friend and didn't. Oh, yeah. I mean, yeah, the friendship thing, that's, that's precious. That's priceless. Um, the Bible, not so much. Um, cause you know, the Bible is so, um, what wacky wide ranging that everyone from like the KKK to, you know, your most liberal people in the world can use the same book and the same verses to sort of, you know, support their own, their point of view. Um, which is kind of genius when you think about it. The Bible can be all things to all people. It's, uh, it's like, it's the magic eight ball for whoever wants it. So, yeah, it's like peanut butter. Uh, we go again. <laughs> uh, but yeah. Oh, and to your point about, uh, writing the, making the argument and finding the sources. Yeah. That that's, that's fine. I, I, I I applaud that as long as you find the sources. Right. <laughs> it's just that with the Bible, you get sources like Ken Ham or, um, you know, Ron DeSantis. You know, it's like, um, yeah, let's find another source. Let's find another uh, way to support this. Well, don't worry, because Charlie, Charlie Kirk's now an authority on, on the Bible. So Charlie Kirk. So many, so yeah. many uh, yeah. wonderful voices out there. Oh, yeah. I mean, when, when you, so you're a teacher now, um, as you deconstructed, how did that change the way you, um, approached the classroom and the pedagogy that you use, even teaching math? Yeah. You know, it's interesting because as a math teacher, there's a, there's a lot of, first of all, I'm used to just about every conversation I have with people them telling me how much they don't like math, but how much they've yeah. done it more in, in school. And I, I actually really like those conversations. And over the years I've found there's a pretty interesting pattern to a lot of that and, and why, you know, why most people will have, will can point to a time when they were fond of math or were good at math. Hmm. But, um, <clears throat> The, the more willing you are to make mistakes and be wrong, the, the a lot of the recent research on mindset and how our brain develops at any age points to how much more we grow mentally when we make mistakes and then work to correct them. Yeah. And um, I think I was, um, uh, I don't know that this is a direct carryover. It's, I don't know if it's anything I've really thought about much before, but- huh. But I would say that my willingness to to be wrong and let my students be wrong was kind of a foreshadowing of how it would carry out in the rest of my life too. Um, Interesting. So it's like the other way around. Like the t the teaching of math <laughs> ends up sort of being a framework for deconstruction because it's it's a different way of thinking that from the the absolute certainty and pressure to be always right in in Christianity. And and that's my that is certainly my paradigm. <clears throat> paradigm for it. I don't think that's what a lot of people would expect out of math because it's people's understanding of math as well. There's a right answer. And, and a lot of times that's the case, but also if we're working on finding a solution to something that has eight or nine steps, and if somebody makes a mistake in the first step, they're not going to get the right quantity at the end, but we can still look at all the steps they use to get there and say, well, Steps two through eight looked great. Just fix that first one and you're good. Mm. And um, rather than jumping in and saying, no, 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 you're wrong. And I think there's an interesting carryover to that. You know, it, it, it's okay for people to be wrong or different or get the answer a different way. Um, and um, I'm, as I'm thinking about that real time here, I'm like, like I've said before, just chatting with you. I, I'm really glad that there were people that, um, that were that way with me. And so, um, yeah. So I'm, I think that there's certainly some carryover between how that works in the classroom and, 
and how it works in faith. Yeah. I, I try this is revolutionary because we're, we're applying the teaching and learning of math to things that aren't math. So for all those kids who say math doesn't apply to anything, you know, no, it does. There we go. We figured it out. See, I'm, I'm doing you a favor here as we talk, because now you can tell your students. <laughs> it's really important that you learn these processes, because right. you will apply them. Maybe. Spare yourself a, a deconstruction journey 30 years later. So. <laughs> yeah. Wait, what, what, what math do you teach? Do you, what, um, yeah, which ones? So I, right now it's mostly... Um, mostly uh algebra one i i can teach others but that's mostly what i have right now so yeah yeah that's foundational um and i'm an english guy uh i was not great at math uh, I, was, I was i was a failure in high school I, I didn't take calculus like all my smart friends um, but then i had to take it my freshman year at uc san diego and man that was hard yeah, because it requires pretty good understanding of all the stuff below it. It's, you know. Yeah, and I, I understood some of it. I, I think I was just resisting it. I, like, I don't want to do this. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, I mean, calculus is so, like, I took a year of it, and I don't remember a single thing. Like, I, I, I looked at some kid's calculus homework a few years ago, and it might as well have been Greek. It was like, I've never seen this before. So, but this, this, uh, yeah. this does, this does get me into another offshoot that I could, I could go for an hour on. But Ooh, it's, okay. Well, it's, let's, let's tiptoe over there Yeah. yeah it, before I bring up peanut butter again. <laughs> so the conversations I've had with people over the years about everybody, most everybody being able to say, well, I used to love math, but then, a lot of people can tell their math story that way, especially adults. And most of them will also talk about wishing they um, had done more with math. But I have this theory that the whole math structure is still stuck also in the 50s, kind of like what we were talking about earlier. Um, we're still mm. trying to push everybody to calculus so we can get more scientists and beat the Soviets to the moon. And right. Um, once that system was ingrained in a rapidly growing society, um, it just became too much work to change how we approached it. Well, calculus is really fascinating, but it's not real practical for a lot of people. And, um, it, it got me to, cause I've actually been kind of an aspiring, uh, writer at times of, um, wrote for the local, my local paper when I was in high school covering our school sports. And so that was, that was nice. kind of fun to do. And I've enjoyed writing from time to time. I thought, you know, back when I had a Facebook account, I'd write a story about something that had happened or something with my life or with one of my kids. And people would say, oh, you should write a book. And I would think about what, you know, my, <laughs> I, uh -huh. I just, I didn't really think I had people are going to want to read these anecdotes from my life, but coming out of all of this deconstruction and um, um, seeing politics differently and, and becoming an ally in, in uh, every sense of the word that I know. And um, I was able to take a class that dealt with um, an intersection of math and social justice. And, oh, hell yeah. Yeah. Oh, it was, I, I, and I thought, because what I was thinking is, well, I've got math, this thing that I love, but I've also got this other area of my life that I'm passionate about now. And um, to find out that those had an intersection was really fascinating to me. And after taking the class, I got inspired to explore this in writing a little bit. And um, well, are we going to announce a book now? No, it's not a book. <laughs> But I oh, did, okay. but I did, Not but yet. I did publish a paper and got to present it overseas this year. Oh, hey! And so that was that was pretty rad, and um, and it was um, the title of the paper was uh, "Math as a Tool of Oppression," and wow. um, and specifically focusing on the U.S. and Western 
stuff. But I realized as I was writing it, um, it was really going to have to be a, um, just kind of a, um, a gloss over on a lot of different topics. Cause there were, it, it goes so deep, but hmm. the thing that I learned is that most of what we're doing in our schools is just based on a system that was designed to, um, educate the children of white landowners. <laughs> and right. that was a system that worked well in pre-colonial Europe. And, um, we have not really sought to change that a lot, even though there's plenty of global research that shows we would do a lot better. And, um, but for the people mm -hmm. in power, it served them really well for hundreds of years. And, yeah. uh, so it's, it's a, it's a really interesting, uh, area for, for me now. And I'm, I'm hoping to continue to learn and explore. Um, it's just a paper now, but maybe it moves to something else, but, um, it's gotten me into some conversations with some people that I've been pretty proud to have conversations with. So, yeah. Hell yeah. I think it was the fourth episode of this podcast was with my friend Sammy and she tells a story about trying to write because, you know, because the Christian school, they have to write like a faith integration paper in math. And, um, she was writing about what exactly what you're describing, like the intersection between social justice and, and math and, and, yeah. and everyone who read it hated it at APU, <laughs> um, including her professor. Um, yeah. But yeah, that's that's very cool. Look at this. We went from parenting and church and Simpsons to math. That is a first here on Chapel Probation. And I and I, I'm patting myself on the back because I hated math I, um, for most of my life, and I just felt like it was like a stereotype that Asians were supposed to be good at math. So I think I purposefully made myself not great at math. To, to fight against it. Um, but I've made my peace and, and, you know, I think things like algebra, like what you're teaching is, is really great because it's basically logic, right? It's, it's patterns and, and, and logic and yeah, so important. So many applications. Yeah. That's definitely the way I see it's, it. Every once in a while, one of my students sees it that way too. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and that's one to grow on. <laughs> the more you know. Yeah, the more you know. It's like peanut butter. <laughs> All right. Well, um, I want to re respect your time, and I really appreciate you coming on. And I appreciate you listening, first of all, to, to this podcast, but also coming on to share your story because, man, all these stories, they, they make me think. They make me... Um, expand my worldview. And so I really appreciate you coming on. Well, I also appreciate it. I, I've gotten so much out of the richness of stories. Um, it's, it's definitely an honor to, to be part of that uh, anthology of stories that, that you're developing. Yeah, no, it's great. I just get to sit here and let people share their stuff. And yeah, it's an amazing experience for sure. And I think you should write a book. I'm going to end with that. I think, I think you got something there. Well, it's uh it's a bucket list item for me. So hopefully that'll, All right. that'll happen. All right. I'm going to, I'm going to keep checking on you. Hopefully I'll okay. see you next week. All right. Yeah. <laughs> so anyway, thanks Jared. Thank you, Scott. And we did see each other the following week and it was great. You should be glad that I didn't record the other three peanut butter sketches that I had written. At least be thankful that my kids didn't want to do them anyway. Kids. But definitely be thankful that Jared did his time on chapel probation. His willingness to tell his story is something I hold as sacred and divine. And his willingness to walk away from so much in the faith is inspiring. Let's hope he writes that book about math and social justice. That's one math book I would actually read. So we're deep in the holidays 
And I know a lot of you listening are struggling with it all. It can be a rough time. And while I thought about taking a little holiday break from recording and editing, I'm going to power through and keep putting up episodes so I can keep sharing stories with you during <laughs> what is is potential, potentially a difficult time. So if, if you're driving to or from some awful family gathering, you can listen to Chapel Probation. I'm here for you. For all you apostates and all you deconstructed Christians, and I'm thinking of you because I know how hard it is during this time of year for a lot of you. So we'll be back next week with a peanut butter free episode of Chapel Probation, hopefully. So have a great week.